Last time we spoke about Operation Galvanic, the invasion of the Gilbert Islands. The Americans finally assaulted Tarawa, Makin, Betio, and the smaller islands of the Gilberts. Tarawa saw an estimated 4,690 Japanese and Koreans killed, with 17 Japanese and 129 Korean POWs captured. The Marines suffered 1,009 deaths, 2,101 wounded, and 191 missing in action. Vandegrift would tell the New York Times on December the 27th, Tarawa was an assault from beginning to end. We must steel ourselves now to pay that price. The heavy casualties would be met by an outraged American public who could not believe such losses were necessary to take such small and seemingly unimportant islands. Little did the American public know, the lessons of places like Tarawa were just one of many more to come. Admiral Nimitz would spend considerable time reading furious letters from the moms of the dead boys on those islands. This episode is The Battle of Cape St. George. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, if you're still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I just released an episode in both French and English on France's role during the Pacific War. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel for more exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is on Yang Kyung-jung, a Korean man who supposedly fought for Imperial Japan, the USSR, and then Nazi Germany during World War II. But is his story actually true? Come find out. The Gilberts, specifically Tarawa, provided the first wake-up call to America about the ferocity of the war ahead of them. Correspondents were not present at Henderson Field during the Marine Battle for Guadalcanal where the Americans found themselves defenders and the Japanese attackers. Six months of a grueling battle would see casualties approximating those incurred after just three days on Tarawa. Correspondent Richard Johnson was one of the first to write out the action for Time magazine. It has been a privilege to see the Marines from privates to colonels, every man a hero, go up against the Japanese fire with complete disregard for their lives. Last week, some two or three thousand U.S. Marines, most of them dead and wounded, gave the nation a name to stand beside those of Concord Bridge and Bonhomme Richard, the Alamo, Little Bighorn, and Below Wood. That name was Tarawa. Johnson was one of 25 war correspondents, five photographers, and two artists embedded with the Marines in the Gilberts. Never in history had a battle been so fully covered by the press. The amphibious landings drew immense casualty rates, and during the act of fighting, the mortality rate per 1,000 soldiers per day was 1.78 compared to 0.36 in Europe. That's nearly five times more. Overall casualty rates, including the wounded, were 
5.5 per thousand per day compared to 1.74 for Europe. Taking a little sideline note here, it's actually funny to mention these numbers. Uh, quite a while back, I actually did a rather low-key episode on uh, my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, just with a uh, friend of mine named Ian, about why the Pacific War is overshadowed by the European War. In that podcast, we went over, I believe it was about 10 different points on the matter. But one of them was simply because the Pacific War, as said by many generals after, was quote-unquote an ugly war. By ugly, I mean it was ridden with brutality, extremely high casualty rates, and, well, you can see here the numbers say it themselves. If you pulled aside two veterans, one from Europe and one from the Pacific, and you tried to ask them their story, chances were the guy from the Pacific wouldn't say anything. The war correspondents learned a lot about the fighting qualities of the Marines, but they also learned a great deal about the enemy. The battles frequently saw hand-to-hand -hand combat, the Americans were shocked to find the enemy were not, in fact, short, buck-toothed, bespeckled Japs as the propaganda cartoons had betrayed them. Private First Class Robert Mulbeck recalled many of the enemy were over six feet tall, and quote, They were good at defending themselves, and so we had to parry and thrust, and they were good. Those guys were so much bigger than the average Jap. They were naval landing forces, Rikusentai like Japanese Marines, and they were larger. They were very accurate with their weapons and good with their bayonets. They were good, and we were pretty good too, so it was two of probably the best military outfits in the war. One Lieutenant Thomas encountered some hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and he had this to say. I had the field telephone in my hand when I was rushed by the biggest Jap I've ever seen. We grappled for a few seconds and I managed to kick him off me, throw him to the ground, then I picked up my .45 and I finished him off. General Holland Smith, who commanded the Marines, had this to say about Tarawa. I don't see how they ever took Tarawa. It's the most completely defended island I'd ever seen. I passed boys who had lived yesterday a thousand times and looked older than their fathers. Dirty unshaven, with gaunt, sightless eyes. They had survived the ordeal, but it had chilled their very souls. They found it hard to believe they were actually alive. He was not to be the only high-ranking commander stunned by what had occurred on such a small island. Admiral Nimitz wrote to his wife, I have never seen such a desolate spot as Tarawa. General Richardson, who had seen battlefields in France last year, says it reminded him of Yip's Field, over which the battle raged back and forth for weeks. Not a coconut tree of thousands were left a whole. Nimitz would read countless letters, beginning with, You killed my son on Tarawa. The mothers of 1,009 Marines and 687 naval personnel would never see their sons again. The invasion of the Gilberts had ushered in what is commonly known as the Island Hopping Campaign, versus what was called leapfrogging in the South Pacific, as told to us by General Douglas MacArthur. Although we have already seen many instances of American forces launching amphibious invasions against Japanese-held islands, particularly in the Solomons, there is one difference to be made. The strategy employed in the South Pacific is often referred to as leapfrogging and the explanation comes from 
General MacArthur himself, who claimed to have invented this strategy despite it predating World War II by many decades. My strategic conception for the Pacific Theater, which I outlined after the Papuan campaign and have since consistently advocated, contemplates massive strokes against only main strategic objectives, utilizing surprise and air-ground striking power, supported and assisted by the fleet. This is the very opposite of what is termed island hopping, which is the gradual pushing back of the enemy by direct frontal pressure, with the consequent heavy casualties which will certainly be involved. Key points must of course be taken, but a wise choice of such will obviate the need for storming the massive islands now in the enemy possession. Island hopping with extravagant losses and slow progress is not my idea of how to end the war as soon as cheaply as possible. New conditions require for solution and new weapons require for maximum application of new and imaginative methods. Wars are never won in the past. With the capture of the Gilberts, now the Allies had an assortment of new air bases for land-based aircraft to be used against the Marshals. The CBs and the 7th Air Force engineers rapidly went to work on airfield construction at Tarawa and Mackin. Yet there were many who questioned if it was really all worth it. Amongst them was General Holland Smith, who said this, Was Tarawa worth it? My answer is unqualified. No. He questioned whether 1,772 lives and an escort carrier was worth the additional airfields. The invasion taught a lot of bitter lessons, such as how to improve the preliminary naval bombardments and airstrikes so they would be more successful, to improve the capability of naval fleets to move into an area and obtain control over it, for naval and aerial assets to remain in the area throughout the entire assault, the vital importance of maintaining good communications between land and sea and between the tanks and infantry, which proved rather lackluster at Tarawa. The value of amphibian tractors when you had to face fortified beaches and, most importantly, Operation Galvanic proved to be a significant testing ground of very well-established amphibious doctrine. The Americans had no illusions that the techniques, tactics, and procedures set for in the basic U.S. manuals for landing operations were workable under such difficult conditions. Now, over on the other side, the Japanese prepared the Co-Brigade at Penelope, consisting of the 3rd Battalion, 107th Regiment, the 3rd Battalion, 16th Mountain Artillery Regiment, the 2nd Company, 52nd Engineers, and some other units of the 1st South Seas Detachment to launch a counter-landing against the Gilberts. But this plan was quickly dropped. Instead, the Japanese would focus their efforts on reinforcing other Central Pacific Islands, such as the Marshalls. Over on Bungayville, the Americans were enjoying a rather quiet week after the Battle of the Coconut Grove and they were using this time to expand their perimeter. However, there was a hiccup on November the 17th when convoy 31.6 bearing the 3rd Battalion 21st Marines were set upon by some Betty bombers. 185 Marines were aboard the destroyer transport McKean as she was approaching Empress Augusta Bay and a Betty hit her with a torpedo off her starboard quarter. This exploded her after magazine and some depth charger spaces. Flaming oil engulfed her, she lost power and communications. Her commanding officer, Lieutenant Ralph Ramey, ordered abandoned ship at about 3.55 a.m., and she began to sank stern first by 4 a.m. 64 crew and 52 troops died as a result of the attack. 
Meanwhile, Colonel Hamanoi's men had been busy constructing defenses around the forks of the Piva River. By the 18th, American patrols discovered two new Japanese roadblocks on the Numa Numa and East-West Trails. This led the 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines to be tasked with knocking out the Numa Numa roadblock. The Marines opened up the following day with an artillery barrage before rolling in with some light tanks, flanking and rousing the defenders of the roadblock. 16 Japanese would be killed. With the Numa Numa position secured, the men advanced over to hit the east-west roadblock next. That same morning, the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines crossed the Piva River and captured the roadblock at the Forks area. During the afternoon, a reinforced platoon seized some high ground to the left of the east-west trail. The platoon, led by Lieutenant Steve Kibek, dug in on top of the feature that would provide some excellent observation over the area. The Japanese would toss attacks at their hill for the next three days, prompting reinforcements to be brought up to help Kibek's men. On the 21st, General Geiger decided to expand the perimeter again, this time to inland defense line easy as he would call it. The 21st Marines would now take up a position between the other two regiments. They would, however, run into some strong resistance from the bulk of Colonel Hamanoi's forces, with their 3rd Battalion getting pinned down after crossing the Piva River by heavy motor fire. Their 2nd Battalion in the center ran head-on into a Japanese defensive line astride the East-West Trail. There were around 20 pillboxes, and the 2nd Battalion were forced to pull back. Unexpectedly, the Japanese pursued them, trying to envelop the line held by the 1st Battalion, but they failed and they were cut down by machine gun fire. This allowed the 1st Battalion to extend their lines north towards what was now being called Kibbutz Ridge. Geiger then halted the advances on November the 22nd and shifted his units the following day to plug up some gaps in the line. He further planned to launch a new assault on the 24th. The 24th began with a heavy artillery bombardment as the 2nd and 3rd Battalion's 3rd Marines began advancing under the supporting fire of the 1st Battalion. At H hour, being 9 a.m., a Japanese battery located on the forward slope of a coconut groove began to accurately smash the 1st Battalion's assembly location. As one observer noted, Shells poured into the first lines into the attacking battalion's area, the forward regiment CP area, the rear CP, and the trail. The noise was much greater now, not only the deafening roar, but added to it the sharp terrifying sound of a shell exploding close by. The agonizing moans of men shouting for horsemen, for help, for relief from burning torture, the maniacal screams and sobs of a man whose blood vessels in his head have burst from the blast concussions of high explosives devised by the clever brain of a civilized man. The 3rd Battalion took it. The CP area took it to the tune of 14 men killed and scores wounded in a period of 5 minutes. The 1st Battalion quickly became pinned down. Fortunately, Kibbeck's men were able to locate the battery and used 155mm howitzers to destroy it. At first, the advance saw little resistance, as described by one historian of the 3rd Marines. For the first hundred yards, both battalions advanced abreast through a weird, stinking, plowed-up jungle of shattered trees and butchered japs. Some hung out trees, some lay crumpled and twisted beside their shattered weapons. Some were covered by chunks of jagged logs and jungle earth, a blasted bunker, their self-made tomb. The Marines pressed forward on their destructive mission towards their clearly defined day's objective. 
Yet, Japanese reserves were rushed to the scene and began engaging the 3rd Marines. The 3rd Marines were facing extremely accurate enemy artillery and motor fire, taking heavy casualties. The advancing Americans would have to destroy a series of bunkers one by one while at the same time repelling the enemy's counterattacks. After already suffering 70 casualties, going on a quarter mile, the Americans fired upon log bunker after log bunker one by one. The Japanese targeted American flamethrower units, killing a number of them. Around every defensive point, Japanese snipers in trees and on elevated platforms fired upon them. Nambu machine guns were firing at all times. The terrain eventually dictated hand-to-hand and tree-to-tree combat. Though grueling, the Americans reached their first objective. The men reorganized their positions and unleashed a new artillery barrage, with the two battalions advancing yet again against fierce resistance. It was not just the enemy they faced. The terrain in this area was dominated by swamps. General Geiger then postponed the attack to secure the terrain above the proposed airfield site so he could provide his men with a Thanksgiving meal. For Thanksgiving, the turkey meals were sent forward to the front with parties organized, braving Japanese sniper fire to do so. One observer recalled, Some of the men got there, some didn't. But it was a good stunt and a necessity. No one would have been forgiven if it had been left to rot down at the division commissary just because we had a battle. The men sat on logs eating their turkey. Nearby a Jap lay rotting in a swamp. Heads and arms of dead Japs floated in the nearby jungle streams. Not a very enjoyable setting, but these were tired, ravenously hungry men who had just been fighting all day. And it was Thanksgiving. Those who were able to get it enjoyed their turkey. By nightfall, the resistance was crumbling, and the Americans were grabbing a mile beyond the objective line before digging in. Mop-up operations would be around the clock, but the Battle of Piva Forks had effectively come to an end, thus securing the site for a projected bomber field. The battle cost the Japanese dearly. Hamanoi's 23rd Regiment ceased to exist as a well-organized fighting unit. The Marines counted 1,107 dead Japanese, though it is likely the number was much higher. The 3rd Marines suffered 115 casualties, thus earning some relief from the 9th Marines for many days. On November the 25th, the 1st Battalion 9th Marines advanced past Quebec's Ridge and unexpectedly ran into some heavy machine gun fire from a small feature directly in front of them. They charged at the feature and tossed grenades, but the Japanese were able to repel their attack, and that feature was thus named Grenade Hill. Meanwhile, General Haikataka feared the invasion of Cape Torikina was only a stepping stone for a larger invasion against Buka. He persuaded Admiral Kuzaga to further reinforce Buka. Previously, Major General Kijima Kesio's 17th Infantry Group had been dispatched on five destroyers to protect Bougainville's northern sector. Now Captain Kagawa Kyoto would perform a run to Buka on the 24th. Luckily for him, his run went uncontested. He was able to unload 900 men of the 1st Mobile Raiding Unit and a detachment of the 17th Engineer Regiment. At the same time, he evacuated over 700 aviation personnel, no longer required on Buka, as her airfield was completely destroyed. Kyoto's movement, however, was soon discovered by the Americans. Admiral Halsey never wanted to let up a fight, immediately dispatched five destroyers. The Osborn, Claxton, Dyson, Converse, and Spence under Captain Burke to intercept them. Kyoto had departed Buka shortly after midnight, 
while Burke lurked near him. American radar gave Burke an enormous advantage in the first detection, and he knew how to use it. At 1.41 a.m., after the initial radar contact was gained at 22,000 yards, Burke turned east to close in more. The Japanese were oblivious as Burke's forces were closing in at just 5,500 yards when at 1.55 a.m. he ordered all of his destroyers to fire five torpedoes each before the force made a hard turn to the south to avoid retaliation. Lookouts on the Japanese flagship Oname only spotted the American destroyers when it was all too late. Kyoto's force was absolutely shredded by the torpedo volley. Onemi took several hits and sunk without a single survivor. Makinami took a single torpedo hit and managed to stay afloat, but was greatly crippled. Burke's force pushed it to the limit, going 33 knots to overtake the IGN vessels as they tried to flee while firing upon them using 5-inch guns. Yugiri turned to fire three torpedoes, but Burke foresaw the maneuver and executed a well-timed evasion. The torpedoes would explode in the wake of Burke's flagship. It evolved into a running gun battle until 2.25 when the Japanese dispersed. 60 miles off Cape St. George, Burke's three destroyers concentrated their 5-inch guns on Yugiri, which received a critical hit at 3.05 a.m., crippling her speed. Yugiri was outgunned and outmaneuvered, so her captain turned her around to fire the remaining torpedoes she had and to engage in a suicidal gun battle. At 3.15, Yugiri received another crippling hit, causing a tremendous explosion, and she would sink by 3.28. Meanwhile, the crippled Makinami was finished off with torpedoes and gunfire. The two other Japanese destroyers managed to flee westwards, but Burke could not pursue them as it was too close to Rabaul. The Japanese had suffered terrible losses. Aboard Onami, all but 228 men had died. Aboard Makinami, all but 28 out of 200 perished. From Yugiri, there were 278 survivors out of 497. For the Americans, it was a brilliant victory, and it demonstrated how far the IGN's superhuman night-fighting ability had fallen to the advent of Allied radar. Burke's victory was described as an almost perfect action, and he was awarded a Navy Cross. But now we have to head over to Green Hell, where the battle for Saddleburg was raging. General Katagiri's counteroffensive was launched back on November the 22nd, and it did not produce the results he was expecting. General Wooten predicted the 238th Regiment would attack from the north, while the bulk of the 79th Regiment would hit him from the northwest. Both of these forces had to cross the Song River to hit their main target, Brigadier Porter's position at Scarlet Beach. The 243rd Battalion took the lion's share of the assault, with their B Company under Captain Gordon successfully repelling the attempts by the 238th Regiment to infiltrate. At around 8 a.m., 15 Japanese tried to get between his right flank and the sea. By 9 a.m., some telephone lines to the HQ were cut. Gradually, the Japanese infiltrators were hunted and killed. Meanwhile, the Fuji Detachment had been created to take back Pabu Hill. Unable to get past the Australian machine gun positions, Japanese motors and 75mm guns from Pino Hill began to bombard them. The Australians took heavy casualties, but they would not budge. Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Scott sent small parties to harass the Japanese rear when they attempted an offensive. Fearing the 2 and 32nd Battalion would soon be trapped, Porter sent his reserve D Company over to reinforce them. However, as D Company crossed the Song River, Colonel Hashiida began to attack the Australian perimeter, applying considerable pressure on positions held by the 2 and 43rd. 
At around noon, D Company intercepted a Japanese thrust across the Serpine Valley. At 1 p.m., D Company saw the enemy force near some huts and began calling artillery strikes down upon them. As they attacked the Japanese, it forced them into a more confined area near a creek. The Australians surrounded them, but the Japanese used captured anti-tank mines as booby traps. The Australians backed off somewhat, trying to contain the Japanese into a pocket as they hit them with motors. By 5.40, the Australians dug in, and during the night, the Japanese would withdraw after losing 43 men. November the 22nd saw the Japanese suffer 89 deaths, while the Australians had only one. With this, Wooden felt the Japanese counteroffensive was most likely defeated, and he prepared to respond against what seemed to be Katagiri's last attempt to turn the tide of battle. For the Japanese, the attack of D Company had completely disorganized their counteroffensive. They had estimated the Australians had sent three to four battalions instead of a single company to reinforce Pabu Hill, and this action had the dual effect of cutting off the road between Wario and Bonga. Colonel Hayashida had no choice but to redirect units to his regiment to defend the northern bank of the Song, to try and prevent the reinforcement of Pabu. Despite the actions of the Fuji detachment, the Australians stubbornly continued to resist, and this led the Japanese to believe that they were increasing their strength on Pabu Hill, and they enjoyed resupply via aircraft. Meanwhile, the Japanese fighting power was decreasing due to their overfiring of guns and motors from Pino Hill. Their rations were at about one-third standard amount. Local supplies like potatoes were nearly all gone, and casualties were quite high. The fighting around Scarlet Beach would continue until November the 28th, when the Japanese withdrew towards Wario. Katagiri's counteroffensive was unable to affect the 26th Brigade's advance upon Saddleburg, and it fell apart. Over at the Saddleburg front, Brigadier Whitehead resumed his advance on the 22nd while the 248th, supported by Matilda tanks, advanced upon Saddleburg Road, while the 2 and 23rd advanced west to the turn-off corner position. The 2 and 23rd were attempting to go across a 3,200-foot feature to gain some high ground around Saddleburg. The 2 and 48th reached a creek southwest of Saddleburg when suddenly they were halted by a landslide and four mines laid out by the Japanese. The 2 and 23rd, after passing the corner, hit the enemy defending the 3,200 feature by encircling and gradually annihilating them. Whitehead believed they had held favorable terrain to dig in for the night, but would be met with strong artillery bombardment causing heavy casualties upon the 2 and 32nd and 2 and 48th. Further to the north, the 2 and 24th were trying to break through towards Palanco, but the 2nd Battalion 80th Regiment managed to thwart every effort at outflanking them. Both sides suffered heavy casualties over the course of just a few days of battle. On the 23rd, the 2 and 48th spent the day trying to find a way through the rugged jungle grounds leading to Sandalberg. Finally, discovering an uncontested hairpin bend to the right that led to the Red Roof Hut Spur. By this point, Katagiri was aware his forces on Sandalberg were not being supplied well, and he could not hope to resist for much longer. He began preparing to withdraw the 80th Regiment over to Wario as a result. On the 24th, Whitehead sent two companies to creep up the approach of Saddleburg from the south, while the Japanese continued hammering them using artillery and bombers. Meanwhile, the 2 and 23rd launched a diversionary attack. The attack would employ what was known then as a Chinese attack. This was to make as much noise as possible. However, the action quickly turned into a real firefight over the 3200 feature. 
The Japanese made a surprising counterattack from the feature, which inadvertently led to the Australians seizing the feature to their surprise. During the afternoon, the 2 and 48th reached the Red Roof Hut, where they found 20 Japanese deeply entrenched in two main pits with log covers. The Japanese opened fire upon them, quickly pinning them down. The Japanese tried rolling grenades and fired machine guns at a short range, as the Australians gradually surrounded them. Try as they might, the Australians were unable to kill or dislodge the Japanese, prompting White to signal at 5.50pm. Plan for tomorrow. 248th with tanks to go through Lin's company. 223rd to hold firm. Just as the 2 and 48th were about to withdraw, Sergeant Tom Derrick made a daring attack against the right flank, rapidly advancing through some kunai grass before his men tossed their grenades into the Japanese entrenchments. By nightfall, the Red Roof Hut was seized, and the Australians dug in at around 150 yards just from Saddleburg itself. At the same time, the 2 and 24th found the Japanese defenders who had halted them had abandoned their position. When they checked the area, they found evidence the Japanese were eating ferns and the core of bamboo. The state of their corpses and many documents and diaries they had found indicated the Japanese supply situation was extremely dire. The men defending Saddleburg were being supplied from bases at Nambariwa, which relied on fishing boats, submarines, and airdrops, because their barges were now too vulnerable to air and naval attacks. The supplies airdropped to the Japanese were hardly enough. It was also here the Australians found a diary entry from the 79th Regiment that I've read a few times. Every day, just living on potatoes, divided the section into two groups. One group for fighting, the other to obtain potatoes. Unfortunately, none were available. On the way back, sighted a horse, killed it, and roasted a portion of it. At present, our only wish is to just be able to see a grain of rice. Another diarist of the 80th Regiment wrote this in mid-November. Received rice ration for three days. It was like a gift from heaven, and everybody rejoiced. At night heard loud voices of the enemy. At night we heard loud voices of the enemy. They are probably drinking whiskey, because they are a rich country, and their trucks are able to bring up such desirable things. I certainly envy them. On the morning of the 25th, the 2 and 48th discovered the enemy positions in front of them had also been abandoned. Soon the Australians were entering the abandoned shell of Saddleburg. Meanwhile, with the aid of tanks, the 2 and 24th were rapidly advancing towards Palenco, capturing it by nightfall. Further to the left, elements of the 2 and 23rd and the 2 and 4th Commando Squadron found Maruro abandoned. The 80th Regiment was fleeing towards Wario as a broken force, with the Battle of Saddleburg finally coming to an end. The battle for Saddleburg cost the Japanese roughly 2,000 casualties. Once the Australians entered Saddleburg, a signal was sent to the 2 and 32nd on Pabu that Torpy sits on Sat. Torpy was a nickname for Brigadier Whitehead, based on the Whitehead torpedo. Whitehead had also been one of the commanding officers of the 2 and 32nd Battalion. Such nicknames were used to signal and disguise messages in case the enemy intercepted them. The capture of Saddleburg was another turning point in the New Guinea campaign. General Adichie would write, Local resistance in small pockets continued in order to keep the Australian troops in action, 
and prevent the 9th Division from being free to make an attack on Cape Gloucester and Marcus Point, should resistance cease altogether. While delaying action had been fought at Finchaffen, the 17th Division was being moved by land and sea from Rabal to Cape Gloucester to resist the anticipated attack in that area. The most advantageous position, Pabu, for the launching of a successful counterattack was given up. Also, Pabu provided excellent observation for artillery fire, and after its capture, the position of the Japanese forces was precarious. Even after the failure of the attack on Scarlet Beach, we still retained some hopes of recapturing Finchaffen, but at this point, the idea was abandoned. The Japanese now believed that Finchaffen was completely lost, and there was not much hope of halting the Australian advance. General Berryman now urged Wooten to begin a drive north along the coast to try and cut off the Japanese lines of retreat, and to secure the eastern coast before the expected American invasion of New Britain. Thus, Wooten next decided to clear the Wario-Gusaka Ridge first, predicting the Japanese might launch a counterattack against his rear. On the 26th, Wooten ordered the 24th Brigade to seize the area from Gusaka towards the Kalung Lakes, for the 2 and 15th Brigade to seize Nongara and the Christmas Hills, for the 26th Brigade to advance north from Saddleburg towards Wario, and for the 4th Brigade to guard the approach to Scarlet Beach and Hellsback area. Yet before the Australians could start their new offensive, they first had to clear out Pino Hill and secure the road towards Pabu. Two companies of the 2 and 32nd with four Matilda tanks led by Lieutenant Colonel Scott were given this job. Meanwhile, Colonel Hayashida launched a last-ditch effort to take back Pabu. Reserve Company 8 of the 2nd Battalion, 78th Regiment, with the support of two 75mm guns and motors, were given the task. As the bombardment raged over Pabu, the 30 Japanese attempted to infiltrate from the northwest and the southwest. The Japanese ran into well-dug-in positions, and the Australians caused them 20 casualties for their efforts. The Australian defenders had called in an artillery strike, which bombarded the ring around the Pabu area, successfully foiling the attack. Meanwhile, Pino Hill was hit with 2,360 artillery shells, then fire from four Matilda tanks before the Australian infantry stormed the feature to find it abandoned. On the 27th, Woon altered his offensive plan. Now he sought a three-pronged assault against the Gusika Warrior Ridge. Berryman, Whitehead, and Wooten were visiting Saddleburg on the 27th when they looked at the rugged country towards Wario. They all knew it would be another logistical nightmare. Berryman stated it would be unwise to commit the 20th Brigade through the center, and that instead they should launch a two-pronged attack using the 26th and the 24th Brigades against Wario proper and the Gusaka Wario Ridge. Thus now the 26th and 24th Brigades would hit the Gusika Wario area, and the 20th Brigade would support the coastal thrust. On that same day, the 2 and 28th Battalion advanced along the coast and took up a flanking position near the Gusika Wario Ridge. The 2 and 28th made it just 500 yards south of Bonga when they were halted by strong Japanese resistance. It would take Matilda tank support to cross over the creek and begin reducing the Japanese positions. The Australians stormed over a platoon-sized feature called the Exchange Position, left undefended. The next day saw the relief of the 2 and 32nd Battalion, who advanced north while the 2 and 43rd would take over a position on Pabu. The Pabu defenders had suffered 25 deaths and 51 wounded, but they would count over 195 dead Japanese. On the 29th, the 2 and 43rd fanned out finding Japanese resistance west of Pabu. 
The Australians attempted to encircle and annihilate the Japanese positions, but they were unable and gradually had to pull back. To the east, the 228th seized Bonga and set patrols towards Kusika, who would find it abandoned. So the entire battalion moved forward and took up a position at the former Japanese supply base along the coast. Meanwhile, the 26th Brigade were advancing north of the Song River and managed to seize Masanku and Fior. On the 30th, Wooten commenced the main offensive. The 228th crossed the Kalung River and advanced to the Lagoon area. The 243rd seized the Horus and Horse Mountain area. The 215th crossed the Song River and advanced towards Nongara. And the 223rd crossed the Song River to cut off the main Kwanko track. Only the 228th would be met with strong resistance from the Japanese, who were now panicking as the fall of Gusika had completely cut off their supply route towards Wario. It was a very dire situation for the Japanese as they were yet again retreating. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Check out my episode on France's role during the Pacific War, in both French and English. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. This month's podcast is on Yang Kyung Jong, the supposed Korean man who fought for the Empire of Japan, the USSR, and Nazi Germany, during World War II. But is his story actually true? Come find out. The Battle of Cape St. George earned Captain Burke an incredible victory, and yet again proved the IGN's night fighting abilities were no longer up to par. The Battle for Saddleburg was finally over, and with it, any hope for the Japanese to take back the Finchafen area. Yet again, they were fleeing north in New Guinea.